This podcast is for informational purposes only and does not constitute legal, tax, investment, financial, or other advice. It is not intended to cause or induce breach of an existing agency agreement. The goal of this podcast since day one is to provide the best information on the Vancouver real estate market at no cost to you, the listeners. To that end, we'd like to thank the following sponsors. This podcast is sponsored by Marcon, a local family-owned and managed real estate development and construction company that's been around for nearly four decades. Marcon is not only committed to high-quality construction, but it also is making a positive impact in the communities in which it builds all across the Lower Mainland. We want to highlight two incredible Marcon projects. Elmwood, a 38-story tower located at Burquitlam's most important intersection, Como Lake Avenue and Clark Road. This landmark tower will feature 335 condominiums, over 37,000 square feet of office and retail space, and almost 20,000 square feet of amenity space. Elmwood has been incredibly popular with 80% sold currently, but they still have a great selection of junior one-bedroom all the way to three-bedroom homes remaining. Check out markon.ca slash Elmwood for more. And Matt, we are also excited about Sone House, Markon's newest community in West Coquitlam. With 165 homes ranging from junior one beds to three beds, Sone House offers the perfect West Coast aesthetic with a more nuanced Nordic-inspired design. Register today at markon.ca slash Sonehouse. That's S-O-E-N-H-A-U-S. Or you can learn more at markon.ca or follow them at Instagram at markonhomes. Markon, building for life. Hello? 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 This is the Vancouver Weather State Podcast. And welcome back to Vancouver Real Estate Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Scalina. And I'm your host, Matt Scalina. And Matt, today, this is a real treat. We've got Patrick Condon on. He's professor at the School of Architecture and Landscape Architecture. Whoa. That was. Architecture. Yeah. <laughs> Just had a stroke there. At UBC. That's right. Great to have Patrick on the show. We've been fans of Patrick's work for a long time. Very prolific. Yes. Uh, everything thought-provoking, for sure. We asked him on mainly to, to talk about this Vancouver 2060, right? right? He basically has this master's level class of people from around the world that come to study in Vancouver at UBC, planners uh, of a variety of – it's kind of interdisciplinary, as I understand. But right. he proposes to them, solve Vancouver's problems – by the year 2060, what does that look like? And we have him on to talk about that today. And the other interesting thing about Patrick is, Adam, I would say in as far as the supply or demand side debate uh, rages on here in Vancouver, we've generally had people on the show that that propose uh, more supply as being the answer, right? right? And, and Patrick, I would say, firmly does not fall in that camp, or at least it's a, it's a very nuanced uh, perspective, one that we haven't had before. But and, incredibly uh, compelling. It is. And the other thing about Patrick is like one of the things we get him to comment on is will Vancouver ever be affordable? Um, what does he think is going to happen with real estate prices? He is not one to hold back. He's definitely opinionated. And uh, st- and, and his advice really... to his 18-year-old self was also very yeah. good. <laughs> I, I I love this conversation with Patrick. It's, it's one of probably my favorite we've had this year. And so. he does have a book coming out in the next couple of weeks, just in time for the stocking stuffer, Sick City by Patrick Condon. It's not about Vancouver specifically, but it no doubt relates and undoubtedly is interesting. So stay tuned for our talk with Patrick. Absolutely, Matt. But before we get to that, it looks like uh, you're really getting ready for the quarantine. <laughs> you've uh, you've pretty much shaved your head. Uh, <laughs> I've a uh, like private pile. <laughs> just kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, but you do look like you're going away. Oh, Joker. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you, you do look like you're... Uh, I'm going away for a while. Yeah, you look like you're going away for a while. I, well, you know what happened was, I, I feel like in, in February, heading into March, uh, actually was, you know, everybody had the quarantine beard. Right. I grew up my hair a bit. Um, liked it so much, I kept it growing and flowing. Yeah. I have a client who growing now is... <laughs> growing and flowing. I got a client right now whose his hair is down to his shoulders. He's working from home. Uh, wow. 
But anyway, I was had my hair long. I was I was supposed to have a haircut a couple of weeks ago. Had to cancel it. Couldn't get in for three weeks. And by that time, yeah, hair was just driving me crazy. So yeah. I heard that the uh, quarantine was coming, and I uh, so I went not, bold. Yeah. I went bold. So you <laughs> some would say. Too bold. <laughs> so this is like the I know I'm not going to be able to get a haircut for a long time haircut. Exactly. Where you took off a lot more than you typically take off. Yeah. I mean it's a different look for me. It's When, you know, Storm Salon, great place. Peter, he's gelling up my hair. Yeah. Uh, it, I felt like I looked a little Backstreet Boy. So I said to him, do I look like I'm in a boy band? And he said, yeah, if the boy band was from 25 years ago, which I'm not – so is that meaning? Which that, I'm not sure if you meant. Well, you are like, about 25 you're, years. You're, you're, yeah, you're 25 years older and fatter than anybody in a boy band. Right. Or does it mean that this haircut is 25 years past its date? Or, I'm not sure. I'm or not. was it the fact that you were wearing a jean suit with a tight <laughs> perm? Uh, this is. I, it, it, the there's judge. a lot of questions out there. Yeah, uh, and I, and I'm not sure. I mean, we say faces for radio, but now it's kind of like do I look like private pile? Yeah. Or uh, Justin Bieber. Justin Bieber. Yeah, it's a, it's a it's a tough call. Um, I'm leaning towards the former. Uh, so it's your hairdresser. Uh, but anyways, no, it's a, it's good, and it, I think that's the thing is is it's just been announced now that this quarantine is going right into the new year. Big right. surprise. Yeah, I think we've maybe talked about this on the show before, but if this last uh, scenario didn't prove it, this idea of like. Uh, the way they're rolling out the quarantine, um, being like waiting for a delayed flight where they come on every 20 oh, yeah. minutes and they say it's going to be another 20 yeah. minutes. Yeah. But yeah, it's funny. Like I, and, and chances are, I was just listening to, um, uh, the daily the other day and they were talking about, uh, they were talking about, uh, how really February and March might be the worst months in the U.S. for sure uh, by way of um, uh, of numbers. So who knows what's going to happen in the new year, but the one thing's for certain, uh, Christmas is canceled. <laughs> Stay home. Don't get your hair cut and wear a mask. But there is light at the end of the tunnel, we should say. This yes. morning I woke up to seeing this uh, 90-year-old British lady getting the vaccine. Interesting <laughs> yeah, choice. you're going to say 90-year-old <laughs> British woman in the mirror. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, getting a vaccine. That was uh, – wasn't wasn't, uh, wasn't, her, wasn't her name like Winston Churchill? Not Winston Churchill. It was her name. Or actually her name. Sorry. But there was – the second person who got vaccinated name was William Shakespeare. <laughs> I'm not even really? kidding. Yeah. Uh, and from the same town as William Shakespeare. So a uh, little good. food for thought. No kidding. Yeah. But what do we got before we get to our episode with Patrick? Yeah. What else do we have, Adam, before we get to our talk with Patrick? A few things. One is the V-Rep Sellers Club. Now, yeah. this is definitely the hottest club in town. Adam, tell our listeners what the Sellers Club is. Sellers Club is where you get information, resources, valuable action plans to get top dollar in the shortest amount of time for your property. If you are thinking about selling in the new year, we are now upon the Christmas season, although the market still seems to be incredibly it's, active. Uh, it is, yeah. But if you're thinking about selling in the new year, this is a great time to actually get our resources. And how you do that, um, these are resources that you actually get to prep to bring your place to market. It's real tactics that we use to sell homes. And you can actually just email us, info at com. Just put Sellers Club in the uh, subject line and we will send you volume one and you will get every volume moving forward. So definitely sign up for the Sellers Club. We should also mention we're also sponsored by Oakland Realty. That's right. Oakland Realty is our brokerage, best brokerage in the city, bar none. Very quickly growing. Yes. Top 200. Top 200 growing companies in Canada, an incredible place to work. If you are a new agent, an aspiring agent, Somebody who's been around the block a couple of times, but just feels a little defeated at their brokerage right. currently, right. you'll want to check out oakwin.com slash join, type in VRP 2020. That's oakwin.com slash join, VRP 2020. First of all, you get a huge holiday gift. Surprise, yeah. It's, it's a holiday surprise, yeah. And second of all, tell them we sent you. You won't be disappointed because you get to find out more about the best brokerage in the city. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But without further ado, Matt, this is a phenomenal conversation with Patrick Condon. Uh, we are huge fans of this guy. And after this conversation, you will be too. Absolutely. Enjoy. Okay, so we're here with Patrick Condon, professor at the School of Architecture and Landscape Architecture at UBC, and also 
He holds the James Taylor Chair in Landscape and Livable Environments. How are you doing, Patrick? I'm doing great. Yeah, thanks so much for taking the time today, Patrick. Uh, maybe to start, can you tell our listeners uh, a little bit about yourself and, and your research? Well, a little bit about myself is that uh, I've been in Vancouver for almost 30 years now, having taught previously in the United States. And most of my work and research has been, I was at one point in my career, a professional city planner, a head city planner in a relatively small city. So, and then that led to my uh, academic career. And most of that has been focused on the issues of city design and how cities can be more sustainable, both socially and environmentally sustainable. Just just out of curiosity, Patrick, so you, you were on the East Coast, correct? Yeah, I grew up in uh, in Massachusetts in the, in the Boston area. Oh, nice. Was it was it a little jarring moving to the West Coast? A lot of people think uh, think there's a pretty stark contrast between the way of life lifestyles. Actually, my biggest shock was moving from Massachusetts to Minnesota, where the culture was substantially different from what I was what I was familiar with. In Massachusetts, when I arrived in Vancouver, it felt more familiar in many ways. Maybe it was because of the presence of the ocean. I'm not sure. But uh, I certainly felt right at home here. Ah, fantastic. Well, well, maybe uh, to start, and we, there's, a, there's a lot to, to talk about today, Patrick. But just thinking about the last uh, nine months or so uh, since the, the global pandemic started, we, we've been talking a lot about um, – you know, shifting shifting preferences among uh, homeowners about the hollowing out of downtown Vancouver uh, and other large cities. You know, New York, San Francisco, and and you know a lot of ideas about uh, long term changes for how people want to live. You know, as a as a student of cities, does that strike you as as uh, something that rings true? Like, what does this mean for cities like Vancouver, and and uh, has COVID actually changed the trajectory of of urban landscapes? Yeah, I follow this conversation quite quite closely, as you might expect, and uh, I find certainly all those things are to some extent true. The hollowing out of office buildings is quite dramatic. I was just reading this morning that uh, the office occupancy in San Francisco is only is less than 10% of what it was a year ago. So that's unbelievably dramatic. Uh, and, uh, you know, there's some evidence that people are giving up on, uh, on, on housing that's in dense urban areas and moving out into the suburbs, reversing a trend that was, uh, that was going in the opposite direction. Uh, and you see some of that evidence from places like New York City. Uh, but frankly, I don't see that as a very, uh, I don't see that second issue of people moving away from uh, the center of Vancouver or high, high-rise towers in Vancouver towards Surrey or beyond as really a significant phenomenon here. I still think the overarching phenomenon here is the fact of uh, unaffordable housing uh, close to where you want to where you want to work. So a lot of people work in, in Vancouver, but can't afford to live here. And they are forced when they want to have a family and they can, they, they need something that's larger than a studio apartment to move out to uh, Langley district and beyond in order to satisfy that need. The consequence of that is they end up commuting on our, you know, congesting our, our freeways and also, putting demands on our transit system. So, in, in fact, I think the larger phenomenon for us here in the Vancouver region is how inequality is. Uh, th- the difficulty of people finding affordable homes is really a much more significant driver in the past and in the present and in the future. One of the things that's very interesting about this pandemic is most people who are predicting a collapse in uh, real estate prices have been shown to be wrong. Uh, there's some erosion at the high level, uh, you know, at the very expensive, uh, highest three to five million dollar uh, price point. But at other price points, there's been remarkable stability, and even as, in many cases, uh, increased property values. Go figure. I mean, it makes no sense. 
So it sounds like if I understand uh, the what we've seen over the, the course of 2020 is some people are, are talking about it in terms of the pandemic, but you're seeing it as part of a larger a larger trend of of people chasing affordability, basically. That, that's correct. And I, yeah, I'm basically saying that chasing affordability is still a much larger factor than anything that might be provoked by this by this pandemic in terms of where people live. Uh, the occupancy of office buildings, that's a different issue. Right. You know, we we uh, we were we brought you on. Uh, we asked you on uh, today uh, to talk about um, a project you did, imagining an affordable Vancouver for 2060, with with some master students. Um, maybe before we we get to that, I'm just curious because we've had Larry Beasley on the program in the past talking about Vancouverism and downtown Vancouver and kind of celebrating. Um, you know the 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 dense urban walkable uh, downtown that we have. Um, what in your mind does the idea of Vancouverism get right, and and what does it get wrong? Uh, well, I I would be loath to criticize uh, Larry Beasley because I I admire him greatly, and he he would also admit, and I've heard him admit at public conferences and so forth, that the one mistake he made was not anticipating how expensive the product that he, he and others helped to launch, which we now call Vancouverism, how expensive that product would become. If you recall, back in the 1980s, you could buy a two-room uh, condo in, uh, well, in the early 90s as well, uh, in, in the Yale Town region when it was just emerging for under $300,000. Well, that's, that seems ludicrous now. Uh, you, can't, you can't touch anything with two bedrooms down there for uh, anything much less than a million these days. And unfortunately, in the intervening 20 years, the the average salaries of people here in this region have not gone up appreciably. They've basically not gone up at all when you factor in inflation. So while the cost of downtown living has gone up by probably 300% in real terms, incomes have not, and that's an unfortunate fact that Larry Beasley has been been quick to admit now, and, and, and I don't think anybody could have seen it coming. I think the, the phenomenon of excessively high and high housing prices and prices that are entirely resistant to the usual ups and downs of the housing market, we've all been waiting for the, for the bubble to burst for how long now? At least 20 years <laughs> in my recollection. Right. And it hasn't burst at all. And the real driver here, which which we in this region couldn't anticipate, nor could Larry and others in City Hall at the time, has been uh, the global appetite for uh, real estate assets all over the world. The phenomenon that we're confronting here in Vancouver is no different than the one that's being confronted in Sydney and Melbourne, in Paris and London. And even in Shanghai and places that you wouldn't imagine, even in places like Mumbai, uh, they've had similar similar dramatic increases in real estate prices, particularly in this kind of product that we now globally call Vancouverism. It caught on here first, but then the appetite of investors uh, was peaked, and they said, "This is a really great deal, and and this is this is going to this is going to appreciate faster than stocks." faster than bonds, certainly, faster than almost any other uh, asset class. You simply cannot go wrong with Vancouver real estate or real estate in these other global cities. So maybe maybe moving on to the uh, the, the project, uh, imagining an affordable Vancouver for 2060. So if I understand correctly, Patrick, this was a collaboration of you with master students from seven different countries that kind of took on the problems with Vancouver. Can can you talk about the project a little bit and then also some of the problems that uh, you hope to solve? Yeah, in our uh, in, most of my teaching is confined to the urban design program at the at UBC, which I I hope to start. And the students that we attract to that program come from a lot of parts of the world, from China, from India, from Bangladesh, from Australia, from, from Iran, <clears throat> and places of that, of that nature, South America as well. So 
our students come from experiences from around the world, uh, which I think provides a quite a rich addition to the conversation. So at any rate, uh, I've long been interested, as you may know, in this question of affordability. It's a it's a fe- it's a feature of uh, my latest book, Six City, uh, in Vancouver and elsewhere. And they came to it realizing that in their own home countries, they have similar problems. So it wasn't a situation that they were entirely unfamiliar with. My students, as you might expect, are in their 20s generally. And their generation, no matter where they are in the world, are not able to acquire housing in the same way that their parents were. So this situation that we find ourselves here in our region is familiar to them. So as a consequence, they had a lot of good insights and uh, international perspective on this, which I was glad to encourage. Focusing now on the city of Vancouver, the city of Vancouver has the most unaffordable housing in the world, with the possible exception only of Hong Kong. That's quite incredible. We're not a major business center like San Francisco or Los Angeles or New York. There really is no reason for us to uh, to be experiencing this, my good friend Richard Wozniak, who you may know from his work in real estate in years past, he passed away a few a few years ago, unfortunately, very sadly. But he used to say Vancouver is the city with no visible means of of support. You know, as a sort of uh, joke, there really isn't. Uh, any visible means of support here. And he would he would put out the statistic that on a per capita basis in Seattle and San Francisco, they have uh, over twice as much office space in those cities per capita as in Vancouver. So it, it raises the question, what do we do here that makes this place so expensive? So anyway, we have a crisis here that I think people don't really fully recognize, even though they're the victims of it. Uh, how severe it is, and I was real. I was, I was, I was shocked that the city of Vancouver, in its current uh, citywide planning process, included uh, housing affordability way down on it on its list of most important things to do. Beside, behind uh, obviously important things like reconciliation and uh, to become the greenest city in the world. But to me, that 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 was dumbfounding uh, ignorance of the fact that housing is our number one problem, and that solving the housing crisis should be the number one thing that any citywide plan does, and everything else should relate to that primary objective. At any rate, so that gave us impetus. That gave me personally impetus in our school to explore this in the hopes that uh, we could provide some models of affordability that would be helpful. And that's entire that's entirely what we tried to do. And since you've you've taken a look at the book, I presume, uh, consequently you know that what we tried to focus on was our existing neighborhoods uh throughout the city where, you know, seventy percent of uh, of our land area is devoted to low density detached dwellings. So most of our emphasis was looking on how we could take uh, those areas, be they Dunbar or Mount Pleasant or or uh, or, or Shaughnessy or wherever else in the city uh, uh, you can think of, how you could take those those areas and grow them organically in a way that both adds density and enhances affordability. And and we put out a variety of, of strategies that might do that. And and. Th- just thinking before we kind of get to strategies in these in in areas around the city, like one thing that strikes me, and it's one of the the puzzles, but uh, that we've kind of talked about, thought about on the program a lot. But uh, you mentioned uh, there, you know, something that we do specifically in Vancouver. What what do we do here that that makes it so much more expensive than uh, other places? Like th- there's a there's something that we've done historically that's a problem. And it seems like you're suggesting, um, you know, part of it has to do with with zoning and single family zoning, if I understand correctly. But can you talk, It's I know that you you, you and your students looked at kind of the, the history of the city uh, and kind of looked at how we got to where 
we are currently. Can you talk a little bit about that before we we talk about some of the possible solutions? Sure, I'd be glad to. You know, I I want to get back to the question of how zoning influences this later on, but I want to start with talking about uh, what makes Vancouver an attractive place to to bring your money if you have money to bring, and so. Vancouver and Canada generally, and Toronto is also a victim of this. Vancouver, uh, Canada generally, and BC certainly included in that, has been uh, very warm to receiving international global capital uh, in whatever form you want to bring it. And the best way to bring international capital into the city, and by international capital, I'm not I'm not specifically singling out Americans or Asians, or Russians, or anybody else, because a lot of what I call international capital is Canadians who also have, appropriately, uh, uh, a few million dollars to invest and are looking around for the right places to put it, and they might put that money in real estate investment trusts that uh, can return can give you a return on Canadian investments between 7 and 10% these days, which is not bad when you're looking at bank returns that are less than one percent these days so this is this is really what's going on that we have a we have an economic system here which is only beginning to start through the empty homes tax and through uh, the speculation tax and the so-called schools tax we're only now beginning to try to rebalance this investment environment such that our own local people are not always victimized by being left behind and not having adequate uh, capacity to compete with people with extra capital. So I, I think that is really uh, a big problem. That's point number one. And then point number two is going back to my main overarching point is that this isn't a local ph- phenomenon. This is a global phenomenon. So, it is peculiar that since we have no major home offices, we're not a San Francisco, that we still attract all this capital. We mustn't forget that real estate investment globally in attractive cities, and Vancouver is clearly an attractive city. It has a great environment. It's not going to be subject to climate change problems like you know flooding and overheating and forest fires to the extent that California is for all those for all those indicators. This is a really good place to invest. Plus, it has brilliant views, and you can you can ski in the morning, and you can uh, you can sail in the afternoon. So, so, so there are attractive elements to us beyond our incapacity to attract main offices that that are at play here. So that's point number two. Point number three is that people often speak to the to the issue of single, so-called single-family home zoning as an impediment to affordability. You know, 10 years ago, I was in that camp, and I did a lot of my work in the past 30 years here trying to think of ways to organically increase density in the city of Vancouver and, and elsewhere, going back to my work with the East Clayton Project in uh, 30 years ago in 1995. But but now I realize, and it's clear to me, that that is not the main problem here. In the city of Vancouver, there's no such thing as single-family zoning anymore. We, just in the past 10 years, have gone from only having legal single families in 60% of the land area called the R1 zones to every one of those parcels, it's now legal to have four dwelling units two individually strata-owned units, which are the so-called duplexes, and each one of those strata units can have its own rental unit. We have incrementally quadrupled the the allowable density throughout the city, and yet we have not seen any any decrease in the per-square-foot cost of housing in the city. In fact, the per-square-foot cost of new housing in the city appears to be increasing at a very steady pace, unaffected by these zone changes. So this is the evidence that is indisputable. It's indisputable. No one can argue against what I'm saying. Therefore, we can, I think, rightfully conclude that something is going on here that's not about restrictive zoning. 
something is going on here that, that has to do with a square foot of new residential property is going to be worth about a thousand bucks or more, no matter where you put it in the city and no matter what you do with zoning. And that has to do with generally factors, which I, I summarize as saying the global appetite for real estate investment resources. Now, there's influencing factors to that. The fact that we've got incredibly low interest rates means that you can capitalize, you can, you can get uh, a property with a, with a much less significant interest rate than you would have had to pay you know, 13 or 14 years ago. So that means that people can afford now if they have the, the appropriate down payment, if they are basically capitalized, uh, if they can they can afford a $5 million house because the payments per month are not that great. And their increase in property values that they can expect is going to be five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten 10% of $5 million a year. That's a great deal. So everybody is is hungry to buy into this asset if they can possibly afford it. Unfortunately, there's a whole 50% of the people who live in our region who can't afford it. They don't have parents like myself who are baby boomers who can capitalize them with a $200,000 down payment to get them in. So we have essentially in this situation stratified our our. Our, our population, our citizenry into two categories, basically 50% each. 50% can play this game and 50% can't. And I think we haven't recognized what a, what an incredible social negative pressure that is on the people in this region and the politics and living in our region. So, so that's the three, that's my three points to summarize, you know, uh, dense uh, zoning is not the problem. We basically uh, are finally getting a grip on on doing something about international investment, and uh, various factors here are making our situation untenable and under present circumstances. So, so, Patrick, I guess the question that that comes to mind is: Will Vancouver ever be affordable? And and what do we need to do to to make that happen? Yeah, uh, basically, no, uh, it won't ever be affordable, not in the terms that we have typically assumed, certainly since the 1980s. If you recall, if you're as old as I am, which is as old as dirt these days, you remember, <laughs> you remember, you remember back into the 80s when the city of Vancouver and the country was, uh, was doing good work in making sure people had housing. If you look at uh, False Creek South as our best and most public example, for for example, uh, you, you see the results of a of a time when uh, government at every level, city, provincial, and national, were supporting non market housing, housing that wasn't in the private marketplace, and we were building just in the period between the end of World War II, say 1945 and 1980, which wasn't that long. It was, what? what's that, 35 years, not a long time. We went from essentially zero non-market housing to 15% of our housing currently in the city of Vancouver is non-market housing. A big giant chunk of it is False Creek South. A big, another bigger chunk of it is is uh people are not don't know much about this area is cha- uh, uh, champlain heights in the southwest corner of the city we had a very vigorous uh, uh project of creating non-market housing because in those days we believed that the that the market could not satisfactorily supply housing to all the people who wanted to live and work here so that was the great era of co-op housing non-market non-governmental organization owned housing as well as social housing. There's very, there's, there's more than one type of this non-market housing. So we, but then came what many people refer to as the Reagan Thatcher revolution. And Brian Mulroney was our local champion of this where people basically said, uh, the government has no business being in doing things that the private sector can do better by itself and the number one category of, of that that those 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 
worthy gentlemen and ladies uh, thought the government had no business being involved in was housing. So we moved completely away from providing housing for our citizens then. And you can make the case that that worked pretty well up until probably the late 1990s, early 2000s. This relates back to Larry Beasley and Vancouverism. Because when we did, uh, when they did Vancouverism and Yaletown and those incredible, incredibly successful projects, you could make the case that yes, indeed, the market was producing housing that was reachable, if not for every worker in the city, for the vast majority of workers in the city, they could eventually hope to aspire to have equity in the system and a private ownership stake in the housing market. That is no longer the case. That is clearly no longer the case. And so my short answer to your direct question, can we ever uh, have affordable housing, is no. Not if we expect the private market to deliver it for the reasons that I have outlined. And that suggests that we need to immediately get back into the business of providing non-market housing for the middle class, which is what we used to do. And there are various ways to, to, uh, to through through development controls and uh, financial financial uh, uh, pulling financial levers to make that happen, which I'm I'm very glad to articulate. If you're interested, yeah, absolutely. And and maybe also just to kind of add to that, it, do you see the municipal and provincial government actually taking the necessary means to get there? Uh, not as yet. They're making some moves in the right direction. I think governments are ponderously slow. It's, uh, but it's simply a fact of life that uh, unless there's a huge crisis, government doesn't move at all. And even when there is a crisis, they move very slowly. So I think we're we're looking at very slow motion on the part of government. I think we're impeded by uh, the kind of uh, lag, cultural lag. In, in recognizing that the, the private market is, under, under present circumstances, the private market is not capable of solving this problem by itself. So no amount of opening up uh, zoning and, 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 and allowing for a flood of new, new development is going to suddenly mean that prices are going to go down. We've seen no evidence of that at all. So those who believe that the problem here is, is NIMBYs, not in my backyard, are completely wrong in this case. Uh, it's not the NIMBYs that are the problem. It's the global increase in land value in urban areas that is the problem. That's the problem. Now, what to do about it? The interesting thing is that the levers of control over this are much more available at the local government level than they are at the provincial or federal level. Largely, the provincial and federal level can do certain things like the taxes that I mentioned are not a bad idea. But when they try to intervene in the housing market, they they tend to do that by supplying money. And the money goes into the land market. So the beneficiaries of their largesse end up being those who owned urban land. And the price of urban land is totally out of control right now. So if the if the provincial and the federal government come into the local land markets to buy parcels to put up affordable housing, they tend to put gasoline on the raging dumpster fire of out-of-control land values in urban areas where people want to be housed. So, so, the interesting fact, so the interesting fact is that unlike uh, the federal and, and provincial level, the local level can actually control land values. Technically, to make an outrageous point, if the locality wants to rezone the whole city to say that in the future, any parcel that becomes available has been now and forevermore rezoned for agricultural use only, the value of an acre of land in the city of Vancouver would immediately collapse from about $20 million in value down to about $50,000 in value. Now, that's an absurd example only to make a point. The point is that the city has, that cities generally have tried to attack the housing affordability problem by allowing increases in that in land value by upzoning, by saying, well, that used to be a single-family parcel, but now you can put an apartment building on it, and doing nothing to control the inflation and land values. 
when they upzone that parcel, the value of that parcel goes up by whatever factor of increase they have allowed. And the beneficiaries of that are not the are not the eventual homeowners who who would buy that or rent that that apartment, but are whoever is lucky enough to have owned that parcel of land or whoever is smart enough to go in there early enough to buy that and speculate on that land value. So the listener is wondering, well, what the heck do you do? It's damned if you do and damned if you don't. You're not going to win by adding density. And if you don't add density, it just stays just as unaffordable as it, as it is now. What do you do? My suggestion and the suggestion of many municipalities, particularly in the United States at the moment, in places like San Francisco and Boston, is that you can't, the city has the power right now to say, we will allow you to double the density of your parcel. This is being done in Cambridge, Massachusetts right now. Double the allowable density on that parcel if and only if all those units are permanently set aside as affordable units. That strategy has the effect of preventing the land price from increasing because the impediments on the deeds of all those new units will mean that the that the profitability of that upzoning does not go to the land speculator, but rather goes to the eventual residents of those units. Now, in order to make that work, those units have to be permanently set aside as non-market units. There are some cases in in South Falls Creek, for example, where people own the condominium unit but don't own the land under it, so they have some equity stake in it. So you can own in such a circumstance. But the other models, which I think are more favorable, are that the the units are actually owned by a co-op association, which is which is bound to when there's a vacancy, release that unit at a price that the average wage earner can afford. And that's what is being done in Cambridge or that they are owned, that the whole building is owned by a non, a non-governmental charitable housing corporation who are specifically bound to forevermore have the rents for those units uh, pegged to some percentage of median incomes. Anyway, that is what is being done. The city can do that tomorrow if they want to, and that would solve in time the housing crisis here. I think the reason why we don't do that is we haven't yet we haven't yet escaped from the kind of addiction to the principle that the free market can uh, if you just allow the free market to be unleashed, you would suddenly have affordability and i I I see in governments at the local, provincial, and national level a great deal of confusion about this point. Which it sounds arrogant for me to say this, but I don't—I'm not suffering from that confusion. So, in just thinking about um, the next forty years in Vancouver, is—is uh, is the co-op the model, um, the primary model then uh, for imagining an affordable Vancouver? For 2060, in in these various neighborhoods that that uh, that you and your students kind of took on. Yeah, I want to say yes. Co-op is is uh, is a model that I think Vancouverites are most familiar with. They have neighbors or or people they work with who are lucky enough to live in co-ops. So that's a model that they're familiar with. So so to say yes, that I would say yes. But I also want to emphasize that there's probably four or five or six different models that fall under the category of non-market housing, land trust housing, for example, where uh, the land that that is underneath your home is owned by a a trust that uh, agrees to maintain the the capital value of that land in control so it's not affected by global ups and downs of the marketplace for land, for example. so in short, the answer is yes. Co-ops is the most obvious example, but there are four or five other models. I guess it, one of the things that strikes me about the this conversation is the the kind of uh, global demand 
for for real estate as an investment seems insatiable in, in a lot of ways and, and you don't see that changing. So in order to to create affordable spaces in cities, we have to change change the model here or go back to models that were used say 30, 40 years ago. Yeah, I think we have to. That's exactly right. You summarize it very well. We need to change the model because I have reluctantly con- concluded that if you want affordability, we all want affordability. You can't do that within the context of the way the current global market for real estate is operating. The only possible solution is for governments, particularly local governments, to use the tools of zoning controls and development taxes as a strategy to incrementally grab increasing share of the local land base. And the target that I usually talk about is the target should be 50% of our housing should be in this non-market category. And if you do that, and there are precedents in the world, Vienna is a good one where they have more than 50% of their their housing market is now non-market housing. There are precedents for that. If you can do that, I think it's a good solution. Instinctively, intuitively, it's a good solution because it leaves 50% of the housing market available for people who want to invest, people who have the capital resources in our capitalist society. That's all cool. I got nothing wrong. There's nothing wrong with that. If they want to invest in a product, and this happens in Vienna, and capitalize and get their six, seven, eight, nine percent per year, good for them. But you don't want to have a situation where 50% of the people you need in your city to work in your city and raise families in your city and do the ordinary work of your city, uh, you know, to, to be closed out because then you don't have a sustainable city anymore. And that's why I think the housing question is more important than uh, greenhouse gas or reconciliation or any of these other issues. Because if you can't solve that problem, you can't really solve the other problems either. Maybe as a final question, Patrick, um, you've got a a book coming out quite soon, actually maybe even uh, just before the holidays here, called Six City. Um, Can you talk a little bit about the book and what what you cover in the book? Sure. It's basically all my content on very um, uh, absorbed in this issue. Uh, if if not obsessed in this issue, because I'm just putting the finishing touches on this on this book, which is entirely about this issue. And so my my comments to you today, uh, passionately, I hope, rather than stridently, put across, uh, are are all about this. So so the book really goes into in, into much greater detail about how this relationship between uh, essentially and in simplest terms the inflated value of urban land has had a very negative effect on people in terms of their susceptibility to the pandemic, because we find that most of the people who are getting this disease are the ones who are in essential jobs at the local uh, food store, your Uber driver, your bus driver, people who you ha- who have no choice but to come in contact with a, a lot of other people every day, they tend to be people who are not making a lot of money. I am able to sit in my apartment for the last year and hardly ever go out because I can use my computer to, to make money. But those people, unfortunately, can't. And they are getting the disease, and they are dying in greater numbers. And they are also the same people who can't afford housing. So if there's one, the book is really largely about, if there's one thing that we could do to help that up to 50% of people, it would be to make sure they can get housing close to where they work and that it is a satisfactory place for them to raise families and they're not scared about what will happen to them if they lose their job and they can't pay the rent next month. So it's tying the pandemic to the problem of housing costs, and it's tying housing costs to the problem of land price, which is the which is the hidden land price is the part of the iceberg which no one can see. We all see the house cost as the part of the iceberg that is revealed, 
But it's not the house that costs a lot. It's not the building. It's not the lumber that costs a lot. It's the land. It's the dirt underneath that that built space, which really costs a lot. And that's what the book is all about. And at the end of it, there's a whole set of policy prescriptions that could solve this problem and that are, in fact, solving it in other parts of the world and in other parts of North America. Well, it sounds wonderful. Uh, sounds interesting. Um Patrick, we do have this segment called the Five Wire, Five Quick Questions. It'll, about, seem, it'll uh, seem a little it, lighthearted. It's, in, it's, in relation. it's a bit jarring compared to the conversation we've just had. But uh, five questions about Vancouver and 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 about uh, your advice for some of our listeners. Can you stick around for that? Sure, I can. Okay. So question number one is, what is your favorite neighborhood in Vancouver? Well, I live in Kitsilano, and it's amazing uh, because it's walkable. Uh, obviously, it's halfway between UBC and downtown, so locationally, it's great. Uh, it's close to the beach, which is great for during the pandemic that you can walk. You can go for a long walk there. Uh, the sad thing is it used to be affordable. It's not affordable anymore, but perhaps we can do something about that in the future. Favorite bar or restaurant? Well, that's also, you know, they have this thing called the 20-minute city. I have what I call a two-minute city where I, I only go to the places I can get to in two minutes. So within two minutes, within two minutes, I can walk to the Wolf and Hound uh, pub, which is on, uh, close to the corner of Alma and West Broadway. It's an Irish pub, and it's the most legitimate one I've, I've been able to find in the city. Nice. huh? We've never had the Wolf and Hound on here. Yeah, I hope they appreciate my plug. <laughs> what is what is one book that you would recommend to anyone listening? And feel free to to, to recommend your own as well. <laughs> well, I've already recommended my own, so my second my second recommendation would be probably it's kind of a, a wonky one, but I but it turned my head around. It's it's uh, called Capital in the Twenty First Century. 21st century by a, a Frenchman named Thomas Piketty. Of course, it's in English, otherwise I couldn't read it. Right. But it really uh, it really explained a lot to me about global finance. And to me, I'm a I'm essentially a designer, not a not a financier. So it, it was a, a terrific ed- education for me, and it changed my life. And if I'm going to recommend a third book, it would be uh, by a, a great Canadian, uh, Douglas Saunders, who works for the Globe and Mail who wrote a book called Arrival City. Uh, and it's not that it was, it's only about eight years old. And it talks about places like Vancouver and our region, which are places where people from all over the world like to come. Toronto and Vancouver are, are classic arrival cities. So those, those have been very good and important books. I won't, I won't delve into my, my, uh, my addiction to mystery novels. So uh, you'll just have to guess it. <laughs> Um, what is one piece of advice that you would give to your 18 year old self Uh, (laughs) don't get married I would (laughs) (laughs) that might be the first (laughs) at least that would be the first thing I would say anyway no I'm I'm kidding I'm kidding I'm kidding I'm kidding I would say I would, but I would basically say, don't let your emotions take control of you. It's going to be a long haul, and you shouldn't make precipitous decisions. <laughs> Very well, well put. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and and last but not least, uh, is there something you have purchased in the last year or two for under a thousand dollars that has greatly impacted your life in a positive way? I don't buy much, uh, so. I really don't have anything that's, you know, like that. Maybe my laptop. That would be it. Perfect. Perfect. All right. Well, thank you so much, uh, Patrick, uh, for taking the time. And how can our listeners find out more about what you're up to? Uh, they can Google my name. They'll see a bunch of stuff. Uh, we're, uh, my new book, uh, if you Google uh, Six City, you'll, you'll, find our, you'll probably find our blog site. So you'll be able to get access to the book that way. Fantastic. Well, thanks. Thanks again, Patrick, for your time. Really interesting conversation. And uh, yeah, you're a busy guy. So really appreciate you taking taking the time. Yeah, it's been great, Matt. No problem. It's been fun talking to you. 
there you have it, folks. Our discussion with Professor Patrick Condon out at UBC. Man, great conversation. Really enjoyed that conversation with Patrick, Matt, and uh, lots of insight, lots to take away and, and food for thought. Yeah, I, I feel like people uh, that disagree with his uh, take on the supply side are going to really disagree with some of that. And I, But I feel like a lot of people are going to... Uh, appreciate kind of a more nuanced version than just demand sure. or supply, demand or supply. Sure, sure. No, it was definitely an interesting conversation. One of my favorite five wires of all time. Um, loved <laughs> loved some of the answers there. Uh, that was, uh, it was, it was pretty funny. Oh yeah. No, yeah. that was, that was good. <laughs> <laughs> what else do we got before we cut for this week? What else do we have? We have VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com. That is our website where all things Vancouver Real Estate live. Head over there to sign up to the Live Wire. This is our weekly mailer where you're getting stats, deal of the month, and a variety of other fantastic things. We also have that real estate research tool, Private Client Services. Yeah, Matt. And if you are not using PCS, you are standing still while the rest of us power walk by. You get sold prices, days on market. You basically get realtor-level information at your fingertips. It's free. It's available on our site. Private Client Services It's the best way to look for real estate if you're looking in the city of Vancouver. That is absolutely correct. If you want to speak about that or anything else, give me a shout, 778-847-2854 or matt at vancouverrealestatepodcast.com. Or you can try me at 778-866-4574 or adam at vancouverrealestatepodcast.com. We also got that secret line, info at vancouverrealestatepodcast.com. And I want to say this upcoming episode in the new year we have, we have so many good episodes oh, coming man. over the next we few got, weeks, I, but yeah. we had an interview today with Brendan Ogmanson and he is the chief economist at the British Columbia Real Estate Association or BCREA for people in the industry. And man, he, okay. So first of all, I, I just want to put it out there. We asked him some really, really challenging in the weeds question about where the opportunities are, where the lag in the market was. He didn't shy away from any of them. He had answers for everything. You want predictions? We got predictions. You want predictions for 2021? Here's an economist that will happily share share his thoughts on the market. Chief economist at BCREA. Cannot wait for that episode. We've got other great episodes in the can. Um, This is going to be a very, very great Christmas holiday for the VREP community. That's that's 100% correct. So stay safe, stay home. And stay tuned. Did you like that? Nicely, nicely yeah. done. I feel, like we're, I feel like we're actually becoming broadcasters here. Two thousand faces for radio. Subscribe today. Hey everyone, pardon the interruption. We just want to take a quick minute to thank the following sponsors who make this show possible. We want to take a minute to tell you about Holy House, a nonprofit organization that provides community building programs and tenant support services to low-income seniors, veterans, families, and vulnerable residents in the downtown east side and across the lower mainland. Melissa from our team has been volunteering at Holy House. Melissa, what's been your experience? Honestly, it's been so fulfilling just to spend a few hours a week in the community and watch how the staff really transforms these vulnerable communities from the inside out, starting with just small things, right? Playing games, drinking coffee, having some simple conversations that you wouldn't necessarily think are super fulfilling. And you come out just feeling like you've really made an impact and connected with the community. And you've been to multiple buildings, but you're playing games, drinking coffee. Yeah, you know, serving food sometimes. And you made some friends along the and way. I've made some friends along the way. It's really helped me be more present, actually, in those moments of just, you know, realizing how simple life can be to make an impact, right? Fantastic. And if you want to learn more, you can definitely check out Jenny Conkin, co-founder of Holy House, who is a past guest fan favorite on the show, or head over to holyhouse.ca where you can donate or volunteer, and they're looking for both donations, and they definitely like volunteers. That's holyhouse.ca.
Vancouver needs your help. Be part of the solution. We are also sponsored by Oakland Realty. This is our real estate brokerage, best brokerage in the city, hands down. If you are in the industry, a new agent, an aspiring agent, somebody just looking to make a change, new culture, new energy, new resources, head over to oakland.com slash join, type in VRP 2020. That's oakland.com slash join, type in VRP 2020. Not only do you get to meet Michael Morgan and the gang, the bigwigs over at Oakland, you get a huge incentive for first going to oakland.com slash join, typing in VRP 2020.